All right, welcome everyone today to the Here Apologetics Show. Today I'm talking with Dr. Leighton Flowers. We're going to be talking about Calvinism, Provisionism, all that fun stuff. There's going to be a live Q&A at the end if you want to have questions. But for those of you who do not know who Dr. Leighton Flowers is, he's the Director of Evangelism and Apologetics for the Texas Baptist. He finished his doctorate at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary and have a great conversation today. I'm really looking forward to it. How are you doing, Dr. Flowers? I'm doing very well, Zach. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, of course. I'm glad to have you. Uh, so we'll just get into it a little bit. Can you tell us a little bit about who you are, your background, kind of like um, what started to get you the wheels turning on kind of studying Calvinism, provisionism, things like that. Yeah, as you already mentioned, uh, my, my real job is the director of evangelism and apologetics for Texas Baptist. My focus in life has been on reaching people, but I, uh, on the side, do a uh, ministry called Sociology 101, where I address the issues of Sociology, specifically with regard to Calvinism, uh, what some know as Arminianism, or what I have coined as provisionism, which I think is a better label just simply because it really captures what we believe about God's provision for all people. But just a little history as to why I started the podcast or this particular uh, you know, focus of ministry was because I was a Calvinist for a good 10 years of my life. I was raised in pretty much a typical Southern Baptist church that taught uh, a more free will uh, kind of theology that you uh, that God truly does love everybody and truly does provide salvation for every single person. And that ultimately it's it's your uh, responsibility as to whether you accept or reject the gospel. But then I went off to college and was given a book by John MacArthur and uh, Piper and Sproul and some other leading Calvinists and quickly adopted the tulip systematic, the five points of Calvinism, and was uh, somewhat of a cage stage type of a Calvinist for a while there, uh, converting a lot of my friends and uh, church-going Christian friends all around me, uh, converting them as I could to Calvinism as fast as possible because I thought it was a truth that was being hidden from me all those years, and I wanted everybody to know about it. And I uh, was a card-carrying Calvinist uh, for about a good 10 years of my life, even uh, went through a split in my home church that I had grown up in. My, uh, my family's church it ended up splitting over the doctrine, and I was a part of the new church in Wiley, Texas, um, called Cornerstone Church that was the new Reformed or Founders Ministry Church for uh, more of a Calvinistic um, or a Reformed type of, of doctrines. And I was a, a minister of a part of that church for several years. And um, after about a decade, I began to read some material and some things that really didn't fit my paradigm from A.W. Tozer and C.S. Lewis and others who I just thought, I just kind of assumed they were Calvinists because they were smart and they uh, they like the Bible. And I just assumed anybody who's smart and likes the Bible has to be a Calvinist. But um, I began to, to recognize that there was some um, very, very uh, sharp individuals who didn't agree with the Calvinistic worldview. And, and I had not really ever vetted the other side of the coin. I'd only really heard about Arminianism from what Calvinist had told me. And uh, the Calvinist did not do a very good job of painting the Arminian in a very good light, as you can imagine. Uh, and so what I thought was the alternative to Calvinism was really strange and weak sounding. And I just I, I just kind of put it uh, aside as not even being a possible uh, understanding of the text until I went kind of on that own, my own journey and studying the scholars from both perspectives. And I really struggled with it for a good two, three years of my life. Uh, trying to decide really what the Bible was teaching. And 
obviously, eventually I came out on the other side, not as a, a Calvinist or really a full-blown Arminian. There were some things about Arminianism that I didn't uh, appreciate or didn't agree with either. Though, obviously, I would, I would side more with Arminian sociology than I would with Calvinist sociology now. Um, and um, it, it was probably a good seven, eight years before I even told anybody I'd come out of Calvinism. I, it was kind of a part of a, a brotherhood that I was in. I loved being a part of that brotherhood. I didn't like um, the way people in the Calvinistic world thought of people outside of their bubble. And I didn't want to be thought of as being, um, you know, unfaithful <laughs> or uh, uh, not not quite as bright as, as everybody else was and all those kinds of things. And so I just kind of kept it hidden for a while. Ended up going back uh, to seminary to get my doctorate degree. And this was kind of a passion topic for me because of the church split and everything that happened. And I just decided to finally just kind of dive into the topic. My, my convention, the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, was uh, becoming more and more Calvinistic, at least among the leadership. Uh, people like Dr. Al Mohler and J.D. Greer and, and many others within the Southern Baptist Convention, very Calvinistic, David Platt. Uh, Matt Chandler, uh, many others that were part of my upbringing and a part of uh, my generation of of pastors and ministers and scholars were really turning more Calvinistic. And so I saw the Southern Baptist Convention really starting to go that direction. And since I had been there, I, I, I really just saw uh, almost an absence of anything from a scholarly, uh, non-Calvinistic perspective being out being put out there on the internet, the, the Calvinist dominated the internet and, and even most reformed writings and teachings are so predominantly leaning towards the Calvinistic side of things that there really wasn't in my estimation, a lot of um, good information being put out there for young people, especially to, to really sink their teeth into from another perspective. And that's one of the reasons I started the, the podcast. Um, I was teaching a course at Dallas Baptist university uh, just on theology in general. And one of the courses was on soteriology. And I mentioned some of the things I'd been learning in my own doctoral work uh, on Calvinism and different interpretations historically. And it was like I lit a fire underneath those college students' uh, desks because all of them began to raise their hand and ask questions. And there began to be debates in the class all at one time. And I thought, oh my goodness, this is this is something that's uh, obviously pretty uh, contentious and pretty, uh, they're very interested in the topic, as you can imagine. And I finally had to stop them. I said, guys, we've got other material to cover. I've got to move on to the next chapter. And um, and, and almost every single class after that, they kept raising their hand and asking questions. And so it was one of those dual courses where you do a webinar. And so um, I, I told them, I said, here's what I'll do. I'll record some information for you guys on the sociological work that I'm doing. And it'll be, you know, up to you voluntarily. You can you can listen to that and um, and all but one of the students, I think eighteen students in the class, all downloaded and listened to the material. And what was interesting, Zach, is that on all of my other lectures, there was like maybe one or two comments at most. On my lectures that were that were not required, even they, the other ones were required. The, these these were voluntary. You didn't even have to watch these. Not only did all of them watch them, but there were hundreds and hundreds of comments mm -hmm. and sub comments on the, on the ones on sociology. It just went on forever and ever and ever. And I'm thinking, my goodness, we've stepped in something here. What is going on? And every generation has its different hot button topics. And obviously the, the doctrines of predestination and election and God's sovereignty, Calvinism, Arminianism, all those kinds of things is a very hot topic among uh, college students today. 
And, and once I recognized that, I, I really thought there needs to be some more people speaking into this who have, who've gone through it, uh, from my perspective. And, uh, and one of the students had suggested that I put some of the stuff I'd recorded for that webinar onto a podcast. And that's kind of where the idea came from. And, uh, I, I honestly thought maybe 20, 30, 50 people might uh, download it and it might be interesting to a few people, but I never suspected the kind of, um, uh, following and uh, regular listeners with over 10 to 15,000 downloads per episode now uh, for Sociology 101 who are interested in this in this topic and trying to understand better uh, how God's grace works. Yeah, that's really interesting. You went through a lot of stuff there, a lot about your story. I'm curious about your story. So when you started off, you uh, you go to college, you, you become a Calvinist. What were kind of the things that led you into Calvinism uh, in the beginning? Well, like I said, I read a book by John MacArthur, and MacArthur is a very passionate, good preacher. I mean, obviously a very good communicator, very good writer. Um, and he just introduced this concept, an idea that God chose me. I didn't choose him. And and that it kind of hit me. And I well, what do you mean by that? You know, um, and then he, he of course, kind of laid out the system or the way of thinking. And then you bring in verses to help support that way of thinking. Um, and especially for an 18 year old student who hadn't really dove into deep theological discussion, it was not real hard to get me to go a certain way of thinking. And that's exactly what MacArthur's book. And then later R.C. Sproul's book, Chosen by God. I, I read that in one sitting uh, after I'd read MacArthur's book and, and just became thoroughly convinced it was purely biblical. I mean, it would just seem so obvious to me. And they just kind of take you through one step at a time, uh, kind of systematically walking you through the, the steps of Tulip. And, and it seems uh, very biblical and seems very uh, um, sound and logical. And it's just this compact system that answers all the big questions. And, um, and it seems so deep and so robust in comparison to more of the seeker-sensitive types of uh, models that we had seen a lot within the church of my generation, where you've got the Bill Hybels and the Rick Warrens of the world. And again, I'm not trying to speak against those those men in any way or their methodologies. It was just that their their focus was so much on the seeker, like how can we make the church better for those who are lost and seeking God, and versus what about what about pleasing God? What about what about going deep into study? Uh, what what about you know understanding the not only the goodness of God's grace, but what, what about his justice and his wrath? If we're talking about salvation, what are we being saved from? And so a lot of I, I, what I went through, and I think a lot of young people went through the same kind of thing, was almost a pendulum reactionary against just the easy believism, namby-pamby, chicken soup for the soul kind of pop psychology that was being passed off as theology and church. Um, a lot of people kind of rebelled against that movement and we're looking for something deep and robust. And they were finding it in men like John Piper and John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul, Matt Chandler, and, and many others who are teaching a more Calvinistic way of sociology. Yeah, that's really interesting. I was thinking about what you were talking about, how uh, especially in college, people tend to kind of push against what they've been taught. Like I think I attend Liberty University, so obviously one of the more conservative universities, especially politically in America. And a lot of people, a lot of students in the student body are challenging 
the conservative political ideas um, that is often promoted at Liberty. I think it's just a reaction to when you get pushed, those things get pushed to you so often. So I can definitely see how that happened in a similar way for you regarding Calvinism. And one of the things that was really interesting when in the beginning, when you were talking about your story is how you felt like in Calvinism, when you were Calvinist, there's almost like this bubble where, or I don't know if I'd call it a bubble where you kind of like got along with everyone and like, there's this kind of like camaraderie of being a Calvinist. Like I can see that on like social media where everyone has like reformed 1647, I think it's 1647 or something along those lines in the bubble. So why do you think there's like that kind of like bubble, like um, kind of like click? I don't know sure. exactly what to call it regarding Calvinism. Well, anytime you're in, in under persecution or you feel like you're under persecution, even at a smaller level or um, a spiritual level, it tends to bind you together with other like-minded individuals. And so, especially in the 80s and 90s, Calvinism was seen as more of a cult and more uh, fringe. And therefore, those who were a part of the Calvinistic movement kind of kind of really solidified. We even have what is known today as Together for the Gospel. Well, Together for the Gospel is really Together for Calvinism is what it is. It's, it's people who have looked over the lines of whether you're Presbyterian, whether you're uh, Southern Baptist, whether you're, you know, uh, charismatic, um, it doesn't matter really what background you're from. If you affirm the basic tenets of a mere Calvinism, the basics of what Calvinism holds to, then they're going to overlook whether you believe in credo baptism or, in, you know, infant baptism or whatever, whatever form of baptism you hold to or whatever, uh, church structure you may have, um, whatever eschatology, we're going to look past all that stuff because we're being persecuted uh, on these doctrines of grace, as they call them. And so we're going to bind together around those doctrines and we're going to support each other. And that that brotherhood really is a very strong brotherhood. It's, it's, almost, uh, it's, it's almost compared to like men who've gone to war together um, and they come back from World War II, for example, and they have these stories that that they were all in the same battle together, and that that kind of solidifies their their uh, friendships and their partnerships with each other as kind of a brotherhood because they've warred together over the same cause, um, and and that can happen within a group of people, and I think you see some of that um, within the Calvinistic movement. Now, interestingly, as with all movements, um, you're going to begin to see that that's what's what once was solidified because of outside persecution now that they've risen into kind of the mainstream you're going to begin to see them them splinter apart from each other as they begin to point out and hammer those differences uh and and you're seeing that already i think if you watch the news and see some of the different um you know splits and things that are happening among calvinists because uh but that's just the, the kind of the cyclical nature of how these kinds of things work Hmm, that's really interesting stuff. Uh, so you talked about C.S. Lewis and some other authors kind of working you out of Calvinism, kind of challenging your beliefs. Uh, could you talk a little bit about like what were kind of like some of the first things that when that made you start to question Calvinism where you're like, hey, I actually might uh, be wrong about this doctrine? Well, that that's that's probably a bigger question than we have time for because there's, it's not just one thing, but there, there were many things that just kind of begin to kind of splinter my concept and understanding of, of the Calvinistic system. Um, for example, when I really began to understand the concept of judicial hardening, um, that really began to make me question 
the how how Calvinism fits with what we would know as judicial hardening. And for your audience, what that is, is there's a sense in which one can grow hardened or stubborn uh, in their rebellion. And all of us probably know people like this who have rejected the gospel for so long in their life that they're they're completely calloused and cut off to it. I mean, they're, they, they mock the gospel. It is just completely something they wouldn't even consider. Now, if you could go back in time and find them when they were 8, 9, 10, 15 years old or whatever— you probably would have found somebody who was more receptive and and maybe their heart was a little softer, a little more willing to listen and learn. And they grew calloused over a period of time. Well, that can happen to any of us. The Bible warns in, in Hebrews 4, 7, that when you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Uh, and this hardening process can definitely take place. And we're not, so we're not born already hardened and blinded and deaf to the, the truth of who God is, but we can certainly become that if we grow hardened in our rebellion. Well, judicial hardening, this is an active choice of God as a judge. That's what's called judicial. Judicial just means uh, an act of a judge. So judicial hardening would be the, the act of God as a judge, and he's sovereign, meaning he has the right to rule as he wants to. If he wants to cut somebody off in their rebellion, for example, he brings them light, he brings them light, they reject it, he brings them light again, they reject it, he brings them light again, they reject it over and over and over, and they just continue to reject Eventually, he just says, okay, I'm not going to bring you light anymore. I'm cutting you off. I'm going to let you go your own way. That's judicial hardening. That's what that means. We see this with Pharaoh, for example. He was already a rebellious man. He, he already hated the God of Israel. It wasn't like God had to make him that way or causally determine him to be that way. So when Moses shows up, he's already stubborn and in rebellion. But the Bible talks about sometimes uh, Pharaoh hardening his own heart, but it also sometimes speaks about God hardening his heart. And what that's talking about is this judicial hardening. The word hardening in the original language literally means to strengthen one in their resolve. And what God is ultimately doing, in my estimation, is he's giving Pharaoh over to his own rebellious, calloused ways and sealing him off in that rebellion so as to accomplish his own purpose, God's own purpose by making his power known through the plagues there in Egypt, because each one of those plagues represented God's power over the false Egyptian gods. And so God's displaying his power through the blindness and the stubbornness of Pharaoh. And so if turning the Nile into blood, for example, might have convinced him to say, finally, okay, I'll let him go because I don't want any more blood in my water. Um, then God wouldn't have accomplished all of the plagues to demonstrate his power. So he blinds him. Now, we're not, we're not told exactly how he blinds him or how he hardens his heart. It could be like the movie portrays um, with Charles, Charles, Charles Heston, uh, Charles, Charles Heston, I, I can't pronounce his name, but you know who I'm talking about, where the, the, the woman whispers in his ear and says something like, you're not going to let Moses get the best of you or something like that, are you? Or the magicians coming up to him. No, we can do these tricks. These are just parlor tricks. It's, it's not a big deal. Um, God, whatever, whatever means God used, we're not really told. But God hardens his heart. He strengthens him in his resolve. Why? So as to accomplish his purpose. His power was displayed through that, and he accomplished the first Passover. Now, what's beautiful about this, Zach, is it's such a parallel to what happens in the New Testament. So in the same way that Pharaoh was hardened to accomplish the first Passover, we see Israel as a nation is hardened in order to accomplish the second Passover. And so God's not causing Israel to be the way they are. God's not rejecting Israel just for no apparent reason before they're ever born. 
God is actually giving already hardened people over to their hardened condition and blinding them in their rebellion so they don't even recognize their own Messiah. This is why you see in Romans 11, it says, God sent them a spirit of stupor, eyes so that they could not see, ears so that they could not hear. And he did this in order to bring about the Passover, to bring about redemption through the cross so that all the families of the earth could be blessed because that's the original promise he made to Abraham that through your seed, the, the, the Messiah would come and that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through you. Once I got that, once that clicked with me, then a lot of the verses that Calvinists were plucking out of their context, like Romans 9 through 11 and so many other verses, really didn't make sense within that worldview anymore because I recognized that it's not they're not born because of the fall of Adam in this hardened, callous, dead-like condition. They have become that way because of their choice to rebel and God has given them over and, and, and sealed them into their rebellious callous condition um, in order to accomplish a purpose through them. And those are the ones who are crying out, you know, why are you blaming me, God? If your unrighteousness, if my unrighteousness brings out your glory, then why are you to blame me? As he says in Romans three, that's the interlocutor or the objector in the mind of Romans nine. And once I got that, it just kind of like the scales fall off my eyes, so to speak to go, Oh, okay. Well, I don't need Calvinism anymore. I don't have to swallow that difficult pill of God reprobating most of humanity before they're ever born for reasons unknown. I, I didn't need that anymore because I had a better explanation that was, I think, a lot more theologically sound and that really helped to comport so much of what Scripture seems to, to teach about God's love and provision for every person. Uh-oh. Um, I'm not hearing you if uh, you're still talking. I think we we froze up. You still there? Yeah, Zach? did I freeze on you? I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah I'm still there. Huh, yeah, so you're you're moving you're moving now. I'm hearing you now. You're just kind of um, broken up a little bit. Yeah, I don't know. I must. That's so weird. My my internet connection should be really good. I just tested the speed. I think I'm back now, though. So yeah, I I see okay. and hear you now. All right. I'm sorry. I, I heard everything you said until those last couple of seconds. So, yeah. Um, okay. Uh, already. Sorry. I'm so sorry about that. That is so. No, no, no worries. Yeah, um, it happens. That's technology. <laughs> oh, technology. Um, so I'd love to hear a little. I mean, you're talking about kind of these things. They kind of started to shift your mind. Um, so did you have some sort of like moment where like this is the nail in the coffin? Was it the whole reprobation thing? Or was there like, yeah, do you know what I'm saying there? with the Yeah, I, yeah I think the concept and idea of, of hardening and judicial hardening was, was the main uh, focus or doctrine that really helped me to see scripture from a different light. Um, on my show, I often refer to those pictures that look like both a duck and a rabbit. You've probably seen them before and you could, you could see the duck or the rabbit regardless of, of, you know, depending on how you're looking at it, there's one with the old woman and a young woman, and there's all kinds of these, what they're called bleaks. Um, and uh, we, we've seen it also with audio things like Laurel and Yanny. I remember hearing those and uh, the yeah. dress that was blue or gold or whatever. Um, depending on how you look at it, it's a matter of perspective. Well, in the same way, sometimes theologically, we can have the same issues taking place where we read a passage of scripture and we've just been taught to, to, you know, you know, it's a duck, you know, look, Paul is describing a duck here. It's just clear. 
And if that's the way we were raised and our parents believed it was a duck and really smart people that were, you know, raised us, taught us that this is what a duck looks like. And this is Paul describing a duck. Then anybody else who comes along and starts saying, no, actually, Paul's describing a rabbit here. We're going to go, what are you talking about? You know, you must just not love the Bible like I do. You must just be a heretic. You must just not be sincere. Uh, you must be immoral. Um, then, and, and that, that's the natural tendency that some of us have is that we hold on to a beloved doctrine that was passed on to us from our people that we love. And all of a sudden somebody's coming along and saying, that's not what the Bible means. It's really difficult to kind of loosen the grip on that and to objectively reevaluate the way you've been taught to interpret something. Um, and that, that is a hard thing to do. And I had debated when I was in high school. Um, and we were debating hard issues like abortion and global warming and all of these different kinds of uh, difficult topics. And one of the things our um, teacher, my debate teacher, taught us to do was to take both sides of a debate, the, both the affirmative and the negative. Um, and I don't know if you've ever done that before, but it's really, really hard to, to shift your mind to start defending something that you've been so used to, to trying to debunk. Or vice versa, and and it, that's a skill. It really is to try to step out of a worldview and step into another worldview, and to and to uh, vehemently defend whatever side you're on in a way that you could win the debate. Um, but it's a skill that was really drilled into me for a good three or four years of my life in in those in those courses of debate. And so I think that maybe gave me a little bit of of, of a skill set at least to be able to objectively step out of my Calvinism and really evaluate the system uh, from the outside looking in, even though I still held to Calvinism, I was able to step out of it in order to objectively uh, critique it. And it was through that process that I really began to see the kinks in the armor, so to speak. And I really began to see some of the, the inconsistencies. And when I couldn't find good answers from the scholars, because for a long time, I thought, well, I don't know the answer, but I bet you John Piper would know the answer. I, I don't know the answer, but I bet you R.C. Sproul, I mean, he would know the answer. Um, you know, Rain Grudem, surely if I get one of his books, then I can find the answer to this, this problem. And uh, I just kept looking and I kept going, no, that doesn't really answer my quandary. That doesn't answer the question. That just creates another problem. Um, and it was just one thing after another like that, that I eventually began to go, I don't think this is what Paul's teaching in Romans 9, for example. I, I don't think in Ephesians 1, Paul's teaching individual uh, election or predestination of individuals for effectual salvation. I don't think that's what he's talking about. I don't think that's in his mind here. And I begin to see interpretations more away from the duck, if you will, and on, on the side of the rabbit, if you will. And it, and it began to click and it just all kind of came together. And I go, oh, that makes so much, that makes so much more sense when you really see both both perspectives like that. And so what I would I like to push back on from those who may be on the fence or maybe 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 you're a, a strong Calvinist um, is just to say, um, please understand that the people who are objecting against Calvinism aren't necessarily doing it just because of emotional reasons. Now, I know there are people like that who reject Calvinism just based upon emotions or just based upon some false thing they heard about how mean and bad Calvinists are because John Calvin killed Servetus or something like that. Um, I understand there are there are those kind out there, but not all of us are in that camp. Some of us have actually really uh, intentionally uh, tried to go exegetically through all of these passages and understand the the intention of the author. 
and and we're not trying to be mean to you. We're not trying to to bow at the idol of free will or something like that. We're we're not um, trying to call you heretics and uh, say that you're not in a good. You don't have good intentions, or you're not our brothers, or you're not our sisters in Christ. There's there's people on this side of the aisle who are yes intellectual, yes deep thinkers, yes love the Bible. Um, but simply disagree with your interpretation of some very key passages with regard to soteriology. Yeah, I think that's a really good point that you make there about how we need to really look at these things and not just believe something because someone tells us that it's true. I think a lot of times, really, anyone can be guilty of it, whether you're a provisionist or a Calvinist or an atheist or really anything else. There's a lot of people who just believe things because people smarter than them or people that think are smarter than them believe those things. So curious now uh what was it like kind of like when you started to say you weren't a calvinist like you had your calvinist friends who thought you weren't a calvinist or thought they sorry thought that you were a calvinist what was kind of the reaction when you came out of calvinism from like your calvinist friends and people that you were in circles with yeah most of my like actual friends that i know in person were cool with it i mean i obviously i mean my one of my best friends in the world his name's jason he still leans calvinistically and uh, he doesn't agree with me, but he and I get along fine. We we banter and joke with each other about it for the most part. Um, and, you know, he may jab at me about something and I'll jab right back at him, but we still love each other. And it's our relationship's not based around this one theological difference. Um, and that's what I was used to when it, whenever before I got onto the Internet and started doing podcast stuff. I was used to really, really nice kind of Calvinist guys that that kind of joked with me about it and, you know, would say things like, oh, well, I guess you're going to go, uh, you know, uh, save yourself today or something like that. You know, I'm joking, but kind of thing or something like that, just to, you know, jab at me. And I would, I would say, well, and he, he would trip and drop a book or something. I'd say, oh, I guess God predestined that for that to happen to you. <laughs> um, you know, and so you just, you know, banter back and forth. And that was kind of the, the thing I'd been used to before I got on to online stuff. And then all of a sudden I was introduced to a whole nother realm of Calvinists who um who thought I was you know an idol worshiper and a cult leader and a heretic going to hell and all these other kinds of things and I was just like whoa okay there's another breed of of Calvinists out there that are a lot more um, angry than than the ones I was used to uh, and and I and I and so I will just say some of you who are on my side of the aisle so to speak are more Arminian or provisionist or whatever you want to call yourself. Some of you have only really got to know the internet kind of Calvinists that are really, really mean. Um, and, and let me just say that does not represent most of the God-fearing, God-loving, uh, Southern Baptist kind of Calvinist and and even Presbyterian type of Calvinist that I have uh, grown to love over the course of my life and my working with founders, ministry of Southern Baptist and other Calvinist friends. That's just not been my experience with them. The, the the unique experience of the cage stage mean type of Calvinist online, that's that's really unique uh, to it seems like the online world and and it's unfortunate. I, I'm embarrassed by it sometimes, as I am embarrassed by uh, some on our side of the aisle too, who sometimes rage and in anger uh, don't treat others with with care and respect on on these issues and. I think that we should do our best to try to change that behavior because we do represent Christ. Yeah. I mean, I think I see this on the internet a lot is there's people who will 
have these like anonymous platforms and when you feel like you're not putting your name behind a comment or a post or something like that, I think people are a lot more extreme and can, it can be a lot more um, harmful and things like calling you someone who's not even a Christian, a heretic, um, things like that can get thrown out of there. Um, but I think I agree with you because most people, like I know a lot of Calvinists and they're some of my very good friends. Absolutely. Um, so I'd love to talk to you. We've been talking a lot about what you don't believe in Cal which is Calvinism. I'd love to talk with you about what you do believe, because I yeah. think you have a lot of really good work on provisionism, uh, free will, all those things. You have a soteriology 101 is just a great resource. I definitely haven't taken full advantage of it yet. So I'd love for you to just explain a little bit about what is provisionism. What are kind of like the basic tenets of your provisionist beliefs? Well, you'll notice there, I shared a screen with you at the bottom under under your thing, Zach, and you can probably oh, share that with your audience. <laughs> um, but yeah. the, the, I use kind of the same, and one of the things that's made Tulip so popular is that they have a really cool acrostic, you know, Tulip. Um, that, that, that theology is really easy to remember because they've got a way, you know, a mnemonic device to remember these are the main doctrines of what they believe. Well, I, I kind of did the same thing with the word provide. Uh, and this just kind of lays out what we would say as a positive uh, perspective, and that is people sin. In other words, we believe in depravity. People are sinners. Um, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and that separates us from fellowship with God. That's what I think the Bible means by being called spiritually dead. They're talking about being separated due to rebellion, like the prodigal son was in the far country, and therefore he was called lost, but he was found, he was dead, but now he's alive. And so that's what we think uh, the deadness is referring to is separation. I don't think it means a uh, complete moral inability to respond to God's life-giving truth, but I do think it does mean that we are separated in under condemnation. We're under wrath apart from our fellowship and our uh, reconciliation through Christ. Uh, second, I would say responsible. And what I mean by responsible is the ability to respond. In other words, just because you're lost doesn't mean you can't respond to God's life giving truth. And so even people who are lost can respond to a God who's actively seeking to save the lost. And so uh, even lost people are able to respond to God. You're not responding just to nothing like you're on some island somewhere, but you're responding to the gracious appeals sent by the Holy Spirit um, through the gospel and through other very many other means. God uses all kinds of means to make himself known. But we are responsible. All people are responsible to the things of God. And you can see there, there's lists of verses that support each one of these things, just like they have within the TULIP systematic. Uh, the O stands for open door. Um, in other words, the door or the gate, as the Bible refers to it, is, is open to anyone, for anyone and everyone to enter by faith. Whosoever will may come to his open arms. Uh, he, he holds out his arms to all people, as it says in Romans uh, 10, 21, when he says he holds out his hands to this disobedient, obstinate people. He longs to gather them like a mother hen gathering her chicks under her wings, um, that he, he desires that all men be saved. He doesn't, he doesn't delight in the perishing of anyone, as Ezekiel 18 says, but he wants all to repent, repent and live, he says. And so the door is open for anyone to be saved. And that's a really central point of provisionism is that God desires, genuinely desires, and provides salvation for every man, woman, boy, and girl. Um, and, and there's therefore nobody who ends up in hell who can say, well, I'm here because God didn't love me. I'm here because God didn't provide for me. I'm here because God didn't grant me the, the grace or the faith that I needed in order to be saved. Um, nobody can say that because God's provision has been uh, supplied for every single person. Um, we believe in the vicarious atonement. Uh, in other words, 
Um, God has provided a way for anyone to be saved by Christ's blood. Christ didn't die just for the elect, like the L on uh, Tulip suggests, but instead he provides a vicarious atonement for every single person. And therefore those who perish, perish because they refuse the provision of his atonement. And we would say it's much like John chapter three, when he refers to the serpent that was lifted up on the pole. Well, that's that's a, 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 a means of atonement that's provided for the whole, but it only benefits those who look to the serpent for healing. Because in those days, if you remember the story, the, the, there were a lot of the Israelites in the wilderness who were bitten, being bit by snakes and dying because of the venom. Well, the serpent lifted up on the pole, which is still where we get our signal for the, the pharmacy. The logo for the pharmacy is the serpent wrapped around a pole because of that, that story. Um, and, and so anyone who looked to that provision, as Christ said, just as those look to the serpent on the pole, whoever looks to me will be healed. Well, he's a provision made for all people, but only those who look to him in faith are actually going to receive the benefit of that, uh, provision of that, uh, vicarious atonement. The I stands for illuminating grace instead of irresistible grace, like the Calvinist would say. We believe grace is illuminating, meaning it's a light that's uh, come to enlighten all men, as John 1, 9 says, um, that, that, that the scripture is made known to all people, that the truth is made known to all people, that sufficient light is made known to all people, as we see in Romans 1 and 2. And this grace is an illuminating grace, which makes the truth of who God is abundantly clear to all people, so that all may uh, know the truth and accept the truth or suppress the truth. And they're responsible for which one they do. Um, no one again dies or suffers or perishes for a lack of truth or a lack of provision. Um, D stands for destroyed, which is uh, uh, talking about what scripture teaches with regard to um, those who are uh, those who perish or those who resist the truth or reject the truth as um, as, as Paul points out in second Thessalonians 2:10. Um, so you're destroyed ultimately for your what you do with the word of God. If you continue to suppress the truth and unbelief, then you will be destroyed. Um, and then eternal security. Um, this is one of the, the the things that seem very similar to what the Calvinistic system says with the guard with uh, the P, the perseverance of the saints. But eternal security for uh, the provisionist or the Southern Baptist traditionalist is really about all about what predestination is is that God is predestined for true believers, for those who are put their faith in Christ. He is predestined what will happen to them, what will happen to those who step into a relationship with the Father through the Son. Well, they'll be made holy and blameless because that's what we're predestined to, according to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, and will be conformed into the image of His Son, as uh, Romans 8, uh, 29 and 30 says. And so we're, we're, we, we believe in predestination. We don't believe that God predestines certain lost individuals to believe so as to be effectually saved, but we do believe that God is predestined, and the word predestination just simply means the destination has been set beforehand. And we believe that the destination for all believers has been set beforehand. We will be justified, we will be sanctified, we will be glorified, brought up to heaven into the place that he's prepared for us. That's what predestination is all about. The destination has been set beforehand. And one one of the things I use as a good illustration for that, Zach, um, when I'm especially when I'm talking to students, is is like an airplane. That an airplane is destined. The destination has been set beforehand. It's destined to fly, let's say, from Dallas to Chicago tomorrow at noon. Well, the destination is set. That is predestination right there. 
but the airline doesn't decide who gets on the plane and who doesn't. The airline says, whosoever will may come. And anyone can enter into that plane. But once you get into the plane, it's sealed and the destination has been set. You're going from this location to that location because the airline has made that determination beforehand. And it's your responsibility as to whether you get on the plane or whether you get into Christ through faith or whether you reject him. And so that's our doctrine of predestination. And that's where really eternal security comes from. We're secure in him. Uh, we're not secure in ourselves. We're not secure in our, we're not saving ourselves here. It is, it is he, he is the one who secures us. Um, but we are responsible for what we do with the truth that he has brought to us. So hopefully that helps. Yeah, I think that's a really good uh, outline of everything. So one question here, as you were going through eternal security, I think a common question that we'll see among Christians is, can a Christian lose his salvation? So I think I know your answer um, to this question, but I'm just curious, how do you, when someone asks you this this question, how do you respond to them on if they could lose their salvation? Well, the way we would talk about that is that even even the Armenian position that's that that does not uh, uphold eternal security, they don't like Michael Brown, for example, he's a friend of mine who does not believe in eternal security. Um, even he would not say that you could quote unquote lose your salvation. Um, it's not like a set of car keys that you leave somewhere or you forget them or you drop them or something like that. Uh, and and also he would never say that you could just out sin God's grace. Like okay, he lied one too many times this week, he's out. You know, mm -hmm. Michael Brown, even though he doesn't agree with me on eternal security, he would he would not say that what he would say, those who believe that you can, quote unquote, lose your salvation. What he would actually say is not losing your salvation, but you can leave it. In other words, you can reject Christ. And so you can grow to a point where you just say, I don't believe in Christ anymore. I'm rejecting him for whatever reason. And you can walk away. Now, what we as Southern Baptist traditionalists, provisionists would say is that if somebody does that, that's an indication of a lack of genuine faith. And this would refer to first John, for example, where you'd say those who've gone from us were never really of us because it's demonstrating uh, more of, of what's happening inside their lives. Um, and the way we've, we've explained this before is that God knows not only the root, I mean, not only the fruit like we can see, but God knows the root and uh, we only see the fruit. And so um, it, it's, it's difficult for us from the human perspective to judge the heart of a person. We can't. All we can know is the fruit. And so while the fruit may demonstrate somebody as a genuine believer and one who's trusting Christ and has been indwelled by the spirit, we can't really know that except by the fruit of uh, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and perseverance for that matter. If one doesn't persevere, then to for, from our perspective, that is revealing a root issue that there really wasn't a, a, a true conversion and a true indwelling of the spirit that took place in that person's life. And we have some videos there at Sociology 101 where we go in more detail on that. I have some very close friends of mine who disagree with me on that particular issue. Like I mentioned, Michael Brown and others, uh, even a part of our Trinity Network who disagree with me on the concept of eternal security. And I still have a great amount of respect for them. I understand where they're coming from. And, uh, and, and, I, and I still respect their, their position, but I just disagree on that particular point. Yeah. One of the things I appreciate, appreciate about you, I mean, I don't know you as like a friend or anything, but it seems like you're the kind of guy that's okay with a disagreement won't destroy a friendship. Like it's okay sure. to disagree on a topic. And I really appreciate that. Uh, so 
we're gonna what we're gonna do now is for about maybe like 30-ish minutes. Uh, we'll just see how long it takes. We're gonna go through some verses that are used to propagate Calvinism. Obviously, these verses you could give probably whole lecture series on and i'm sure for some of them you probably have so feel free to direct resources if you have more in-depth resources on these verses but we're just going to kind of go through some of the verses used typically by calvinists to show certain parts of their theology so we're also going to do a q a so if you have questions at the end we will go through them just put them in the chat and we will get there but to start off uh put them up on the screen here we'll start with john 644 uh all these verses are in the english standard version uh it says, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. So I think obviously this verse could be used to propagate the idea that you can't be saved unless God, in a sense, chooses you. So how do you look at that verse? Well, if you'll share that screen there that I just uh, shared with you, uh, Zach, that, that kind of gives a, a little bit of a, an overview um, of, of what we would say. Th this is John six forty four. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. Now, Calvinism's uh, interpretation of that might be something like, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me compels or drags, uh, as R.C. Sproul puts it, when he talks about the word draw, that it's a compelling kind of irresistible kind of drawing. And those are the ones he will raise up. He will raise up those who he has compelled on the last day. And that's the way they would interpret that verse. Now, <clears throat> excuse me, on provisionism, however, what we would say, is that no one can come to me unless the Father who has sent me enables him. Now, we're we're not trying to say that the word, we're fine with the word draws, just like the Calvinist is. But we're trying to understand, you know, when you're talking about a different language, you're trying to figure out which, which of these adjectives or what these words best illustrates the meaning behind that particular Greek word. Uh, helco is the Greek word there for draws. And there's different ways in which it's interpreted. Should should it be drags? Should it be draws? Should it be woos? Should it be enables? Should it be in capels? I mean, what what is the meaning in the English behind that word? And so what we would say instead of compels is that he enables him. And I will raise up he who comes on the last day is being the referent to the enabling. And so and it goes on to say, it is written in the prophets and they shall be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. And so a lot of times verse 45 is left out in this discussion because verse 45, in my estimation, really gives a clear indication of what's happening in this first century narrative. Because what's really happening is that people who have listened and learned from the father, in other words, they have been listening to the Old Testament scriptures and they are not hardened and calloused like the Jews generally were of that day who were self-righteous, old wineskins that couldn't take the new wine, had grown calloused and hardened as, as Acts 28 verse uh, 27, 28 talks about that they have closed their eyes to the truth of who God is. And because they haven't been listening to the father, they're not able to recognize their the son. Those who are listening to the father, however, are able to recognize the son and therefore come to him. And this is what we think is happening within this first century uh, dynamic, is that here in John 6, the audience there is, is not rebellious and rejecting the Messiah because of an inborn nature that they had no control over, like the tea of tulip would suggest. But if you read John chapter 12, it pretty clearly states that the reason that they're rejecting him is because they've grown calloused and hardened, and God is cutting them off in their rebellion so as to accomplish a purpose through these hardened Jews. 
And so Jesus is speaking in parabolic language, like eat my flesh and drink my blood, keeping them in the dark so as to accomplish the crucifixion through these same people who are very likely just in a few uh, months from then going to be crying out, give us Barabbas and crucify Jesus. Um, and this is the context that this is all happening in. And also in, in John chapter 12, we see where it says, when I am raised up, I will draw all people to myself. And so th that's the context of this, that he will draw people once he accomplishes crucifixion and the resurrection, and he uh, sends the gospel to go to all creatures, then he will draw all people to himself. But he's not doing that right now uh, while he's down from heaven in John chapter 6. He's only entrusting himself to a select remnant, a few, those who have listened and learned from the Father, those who are being given to the Son to be trained to be the ones who are going to take the gospel to all the world, um, namely his apostles, the 12 that are the only ones who end up staying there in John chapter 6 when you read the context. Um, again, much more can be said about this. Um, you can take that off of there now, but uh, I was going to point out to you that um, in this book, I go through John chapter 6 in greater detail. Uh, this is called The Potter's Promise, a, a biblical defense of traditional sociology you can find uh, there on Amazon. Uh, and there's also a, uh, a cheaper version for uh, ebook version, if you, if you'd like that as well, but it goes in more detail into that and in other passages that we may talk about too, Ephesians one, and especially most, especially Romans chapter nine, 10 and 11. Awesome. Do you have like cool graphics like that for all the verses that I sent you? I'm just trying to make sure. Uh... <laughs> no, I don't have them up for all of them. I, I, I have them for a few, so that may help. That's okay. Just, just some of them, <laughs> yeah, I was just wondering if I shouldn't even throw these verses up if you have these like really cool graphics that are like. No, and I don't have them for all of them, but I, I do have, I, I happen, you know, on the big ones, John 6, 44 is a pretty uh, well-known uh, passage and I just happen to have that one with me. Yeah. Awesome. Well, we'll go to Ephesians 1, 4 through 6 here. Uh, I don't know if you have this one, but this is uh, in the English Standard Version as well. Um, it says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that he should be holy and blameless before him. So I think, obviously, first he chose us, maybe a sense of predestination here from a Calvinist. In love, he pre predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. So I think, obviously, with a from a Calvinist perspective here, you look at this verse and say, uh, people were predestined to be adopted sons of Jesus Christ. So it's some sort of like election that we're looking at here. So how do you kind of look at that verse? Well, um, since I did share stuff on the other one, um, what I may do here, if it's okay, let me put up the verse. Can you, can you see that? Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I'll go ahead and put that up there. Um, I, a lot of times when you're talking to a Calvinist, they will start with verse four. Um, and they, they will just start reading with just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. But I always like to back up and look at the context a little bit more fully. And notice what it says here. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. So this, this part right here tells us who the audience is. And so every time we see the word us in a, in a few minutes, a few seconds down the line here, we're going to look back at this right here and say, who is us? Well, the us is the faithful in Christ Jesus. So you can't just assume us is somebody picked before the foundation of the world for not, some reasons we just don't know uh, that have never been revealed to us. Um, yes, he chose us, but who's us? The faithful in Christ Jesus, those who are in Christ, that's who he chose. And so this helps gives us some clarity when we come to verse four here, because just as he chose us in him. Again, who is us in him? Well, we already know it's the faithful in Christ Jesus. This, this in him 
a theme, this in Christ or in him theme is seen all throughout Paul's epistles. And like it's like 13 times in these first 10 verses. So in him is a just a, a, a theme that you see from Pauline literature, but especially here in this long sentence of, uh, of Ephesians chapter one, you see in him over and over and over again. And you can't ignore that because it really gives us the context of what Paul is talking about. And so it says he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Notice it doesn't say he chose uh, to cause certain ones of us to be in him before the foundation of the world. No, he chose the faithful in him, the faithful in Christ Jesus. And this has been a plan from the very beginning, from the foundation of the world, for what? That we, who's we? The faithful in Christ Jesus would be what? Holy and blameless before him. So in other words, God's predestined plan from before the foundation of the world is that whoever is in Christ through faith, whether Jew or Gentile, whether slave or free, whether male or female, would be holy and blameless before him. In other words, God has predestined beforehand what would happen to those who are in Christ Jesus. Notice it goes on to say, in love, he predestined us to what? To adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Now, we haven't been fully adopted yet. Um, as Romans 8.23 says, that we eagerly await our adoption, the redemption of our bodies. So I'm eagerly awaiting um, the full adoption, just like in a real adoption situation, uh, the, the parents may go and fill out the paperwork, but the adoption's not really fulfilled until they go pick up the child and take up residence with their adopted parents. Well, we're waiting for that, aren't we? We're looking forward to going to the place that he's prepared for us, and that's what we're looking forward to in adoption. Well, how do I know that's going to happen? Well, because God is destined beforehand for whoever's in Christ Jesus that we're going to take up residence with him. So I'm looking forward to the completion of my adoption in Christ Jesus, where I'm glorified in him. I'm looking forward to that adoption because God is destined beforehand. That's what's going to happen to everyone who's in Christ Jesus. So the real question comes down to this, Zach, is how do you get to be in Christ Jesus? Does God just arbitrarily, seemingly randomly, and I know Calvinists aren't saying it's random, they're saying it's according to the secret counsel of God's will, but to us it seems random because there's no reason given as to why he chooses one person and not another. Is God just kind of picking people before the foundation of the world and saying, yeah, I'm going to I'm gonna choose that person to be saved and that person to be saved, and I'm going to cause them to believe, and I'm going to cause that one to believe, but that one over there, I'm going to seal them in disobedience from the time they're born. They're going to be born hardened and not be able to even see the word. And I'm just going to glorify myself through this saving of a few and, and damning the rest. I, I, that's just not the, the tenor of scripture. It's not what we see in, in the, the language of Paul or any of the other uh, New Testament authors, not to mention the first three or 400 years of the, the Christian church's writings. Uh, it's not really until Augustine and uh, the, the fifth century that we really see that kind of a individualized, predestinarian, uh, deterministic kind of interpretation really enter into the church vernacular. Um, and so what I, I like to point people back to is to say, okay, I don't know about you, but I want to be in Christ. I, I want I want the benefits and the blessings of being in Christ. I want to be adopted. And so I, I want to be in Christ Jesus. How does that happen? When and how do we, do we come to be in Christ? Um, and I'm not trying to skip these verses. I'm just, for time's sake, skipping ahead to verse 13. Because verse 13 tells us how to be in him. It says, in him, you also, after listening to the message of truth. So when does it happen? After hearing the gospel, the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed. So what do you need to do? You need to believe. And then what happens? 
you were sealed in him, the Holy Spirit of promise. So those who hear the message of truth, the gospel, if you believe in that truth, you are marked or sealed in Christ Jesus. So you're in him through faith in the proclamation of the gospel. You're not placed in him arbitrarily before the world begins. You're responsible for what you do with the word of God. And therefore, you're able to either accept or reject that truth. And if you accept it, then you're placed in him by grace. Uh, and that's the beauty of the good news of the gospel. The good news is actually good. It's, it's that God has chosen to provide a way of salvation for every single person. And no one has to perish. Anyone can be saved. That's the good news. Sweet. Uh, so one kind of like question here as I was looking through that passage that came out is how would you respond to uh, like a Calvinist or in a, someone in that reformed group where if you look at, let's say like uh, verse two, obviously verse one, you made the point it's talking about those who are faithful in Christ Jesus. But obviously the opposite of being faithful in Christ Jesus would obviously be to be unfaithful, to not be in Christ Jesus. So uh, in verse five, where it talks about the people who are predestined, uh, the opposite um, that it's kind of like there's some sort of reprobation because if you're not faithful in Christ Jesus, then you weren't predestined. I think um, kind of my rough take at trying to explain Calvinism uh, in this verse. So how do you look at like this verse being used, especially verse five being used in reprobation? Well, obviously there's the flip side of the same coin. Uh, if you've got election of individuals to be effectually saved, irresistibly saved, then the other side of that coin is the, the bad news. That is that everyone else who's not elected has been ultimately passed by or reprobated as, as you were mentioning. And so if he's predestined some for salvation, then that must mean he has predestined everyone else for damnation. And this is the, the, the problem with the Calvinistic system is that there is no talk of quote unquote, these uh, non-elect reprobates in the scriptures. There's inferences that Calvinists will pull out of their context, in my estimation, but there's no real biblical concept or category of teaching of people who've been ultimately rejected for reasons unknown before they're even born. Um, the, this is just a misreading of certain passages of scripture with regard either to the hardening of Israel or God's selection of, of one group of people for another so as to be the, uh, the means by which the, the gospel would be accomplished. And they take that as soteriological uh, versus really about God's redemptive plan for, for history, which we can get into more if you want. But um, I, I just really think it's a, just a misapplication, a misinterpretation of passages like these that, that led Calvinists astray. All right. Um, thank you for that. Uh, we'll go here. We'll look just a little bit further on the passage, verses 9 through 10. Um, well, do you want to just use like that kind of like the thing you pulled up there just for ver in the beginning? Or do you have like a really cool graphic? Or um, Are you talking about Ephesians, going back to Ephesians 1? Yeah, verses nine through ten is what I'm thinking. Yeah, let me let me. Uh, sorry, I, I already pulled that out. Let me let me share it back with you again. Yeah. Um, okay. There it is again. Sweet. All right, I will read verses nine through ten, and we'll just maybe see if your initial thoughts on the passage, and we'll see if any other questions is okay. Getting to know it. So I'll start with verse nine. It says, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times. That is the summing up of all things, things in the heavens and things on the earth. Uh, so how do you kind of look at that passage? Uh, some people obviously use that to propagate some sort of like Calvinist view. How do you look at that passage? 
Well, you just go through the passage and he says, he made known to us again, who, who is us? The faithful in Christ Jesus. So those who have faith in Christ, he makes known to us the mystery of his will. Uh, he, he does that through scriptures. He does that through the proclamation of the word, through preachers, through teachers, uh, being discipled. He makes known the mystery of his, the truth of who he is according to his, the kind intention. And this 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 gets to the kind intention of, of God. Does he have kind intention towards just a few select people or is his intentions of kindness for the world as the you know, John three sixteens and so many other passages talk about the the grace and the the goodness of mercies of God being on all of His creation and all the things that we see of God's love and kindness. Is His kind intention only uh, directed at a select few, or is kind intention uh, directed to the to the world as a whole? Um, so, is the kind intention which He purposed in Him? And again, like I mentioned before, um, the in Him vernacular here is really clear. Uh, it, it's kind of a headship uh, imagery here that you're either in Adam, meaning under the flesh or uh, the world, or you're in him, which means you're, you're under the spirit, under the provision of God, the spiritual blessings that are, are destined for those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, you can have those spiritual blessings. If you enter in through faith, you walk through the open doors. We talked about earlier, those blessings are, are created um, and uh, are there for, anyone to be able to have them. Whereas on Calvinism, it's limited only to those he has selected before the foundation of the world. And everyone else is just, you know, too bad, so sad. You were born non-elect. You don't even have uh, the, 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 the option of celebrating a part of these blessings that were predestined for only the elect people. Um, and according to Calvinism, they would never want to because their nature is such that they would only hate the, the blessings of God and reject the things of God because of a natural condition they were born it with that they only can hate and reject the things of God. Um, and in verse 10, with a view to the administration or administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and on earth and things under the earth. I mean, this, I mean, again, just talking about the, the overall blessings of God, the, that God has uh, destined beforehand for those who are in Christ and that all things will be made right and made whole uh, and redeemed in Christ. Yeah, I think it's, do you have any other thoughts on that passage? I think it's, I don't really have anything to follow up on that with that at the moment. Yeah. I mean, verse getting into verse 11, if you want to go there, because that that's an obviously a, a pretty well-known proof text where it says in him again, in him also, we always remember who we is. We is the faithful in Christ Jesus. And it may even help just to plug that in there. Um, just to take that faithful in Christ Jesus and plug it into the word we, so you understand what he's talking about. We, the faithful who hope in Christ Jesus, have obtained an inheritance. We have been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. Now, this is present active. This, this is a present active working. In other words, this isn't a fixed um, decree, as it's often read by the Calvinist, where Calvinists will quote from verse 11, as if God has this sovereign decree where he has fixed or determined everything that takes place in the world. Um, that's not that's not the way this verse reads. This verse is talking about him working all things presently for the good of those who are in him. So this is the parallel to Romans 8.28 when it says that he works out all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So that's a very specific blessing that God has for his, uh, his uh, people, uh, the believers, those who are in Christ through faith. 
Well, the same thing is being said here. We, the faithful ones, the ones who have faith in Christ, we have an inheritance. Um, in other words, you've been adopted. You're being adopted. There's an inheritance. We we have we're, we're sons and daughters of the Most High, so we have His inheritance. And God has destined. Remember, predestination doesn't have to be a real weird esoterical kind of baggage word that has a bunch of extra meaning. It just it's destination set beforehand. Okay, so we, those who hope in Christ Jesus, the destination has been set beforehand that according to His purpose, He is working out all things after the counsel of his will, he's going to bring good and he's going to redeem all things according to his purpose and his plans for those who have hope in him, those who trust in him. And this is to the end that we uh, who are the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. And then as verse 13, as we already read in him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed with him or sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Um, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance. Again, referring back to the inheritance again, the Holy Spirit indwelling us is what seals us in him, is what gives us the guarantee, the perseverance of eternal security, that he dwells within those who trust in him. And this is, again, a view of the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, let's move on to Romans 8. I know you've done a lot of work in Romans 8. Uh, you debated... James, what was that? That was on Romans 9. Is that correct? Yes, but in Romans 8, 28 and following is is we, we get more into that, um, obviously, because it kind of leads into Romans 9. As you know, there's not chapter divisions in the original text. And so uh, oftentimes people back up to Romans 8, 28 when leading into Romans 9. And yes, uh, a lot of the work that uh, that you'll find in the Potter's Promise is Romans 8, 28 through chapter nine, and it, the, the bulk of the book is dealing with the, the verse by verse exegesis. All right. So let's take a look at some of that. Uh, for those of you who listen through the podcast, I'll just read Romans 8, 28 through 30, and then we'll just kind of see where Dr. Flowers uh, wants to take it as my browser froze. But it, there we go. It says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. So I think uh, here, obviously, again, we have that big word predestined again, which I think uh, where a lot of the Calvinist ideas come from. So how do you look at this passage? Well, there, there are, just like with Calvinists, matter of fact, there are two or th kind of really two and a half different ways, I guess you could say, that even Calvinists interpret this text in a more Calvinistic way of, of looking at it. Um, even among non-Calvinists, there are two or three different ways in which different theologians uh, focus or uh, explain these things. Um, and so sometimes that gets confusing for people because they're looking for just a cut and dry black and white kind of a duck or rabbit kind of interpretation. And sometimes you can't always give it that clearly because you're trying to understand something that's 2000 years old in another language and understand what is the intention of the author in his given context. And sometimes that can get a little bit difficult. And so um, just like a Calvinist, when trying to interpret, you know, Second uh, Peter three nine that God desires the salvation of, uh, He's patient with you, desiring all to be saved, and these kinds of passages, Calvinists have to try to explain them from their worldview. So, too, passages like this 
take some time to unpack, which is the reason that we have so many articles and a book over the subject. And so um, I, I can just touch on my particular take on it by telling you first, point out what I already said earlier, uh, this, this little section here. Notice it does not say he predestined certain individuals to become believers, okay? Because that's ultimately what the Calvinistic system claims is that God picked certain people before the foundation of the world for reasons unknown to us, just according to the secret intentions of his will. And he picked certain people out and he he's going to make them change their nature so that they will certainly believe the gospel. Well, notice it doesn't say anything like that here. It just simply talks about they have been destined beforehand to become conformed into the image of his son. Um, that's that's what sanctification is all about. Just like what we talked about earlier with adoption. God is predestined or destined beforehand that we will be adopted, that we will be made holy and blameless, sanctified, that we will be made into the image of his son. So the, the two major times that predestination is referred to by the Apostle Paul, neither one of them are about certain individuals being predestined to become believers. They are about uh, people being uh, that are in Christ through faith, those who love God and are called according to his purpose here in this text. They're about those people being destined beforehand to become like Jesus. And um, that, so that's not uniquely Calvinistic at all, regardless of what a Calvinist may tell you about this verse. Um, and so, uh, again, if, if we back up here, the, the bigger argument is over the concept of prognosco, which is the word in English for new. Um, and this word is used again by Paul over in 11, chapter 11, verse 2. And I believe, and this is a, a minority view even among Arminians, but what I believe he's referring to when he talks about foreknew or prognosco, I think he's referring to the same thing he's referring to over in chapter 11, verse 2, and that he's referring to people who, uh-oh, I don't know if I'm still broadcasting or not, but it sounds like his broadcast uh, his uh, his broadcast failed, and so um, I'm going to hang on here just for a second and see if he comes back on. I didn't see that he dropped off till just now because I was screen sharing and I was looking at the the passage, and then I just got a text from him saying that he is uh, he fell off there. So. And I don't have any controls on this side because I'm not the one hosting. So I don't know that I can help you guys much. Okay, I see Rox B. I see your comment on the side. Can y'all still hear and see me? Okay, Taylor is saying we can hear you, Leighton. Okay. Well, that's good that y'all, I guess y'all, that's still working. He's just trying to get back in. He may have to restart the stream in order to get, uh, to get things working here. I'm going to pull up my phone here because I was texting with him earlier and see if I can get him back on. The only one missing is our host. Yeah, that's right. Um, I hate technological difficulties. Sometimes that happens, though you can't help it. Just the way that it works, unfortunately. All right, he's all right, I think I'm there. He is. So sorry. That's all I right. have no idea. My internet usually my internet is like really good, rock solid. And I tested it beforehand, and it's like um, 
your internet works great. You can stream multiple HD devices, no issues. And apparently that's just not true. Um, <laughs> so, well, I'm not sure how, how long it was that when you fell off, but the people on the side chat said that they could hear me fine. So um, I, I guess they heard everything that needed to be heard. But um, I, I just referred to the term prognosco as re referencing the same thing he does there in, in Romans chapter 11, really about those known formally um, as, as indication of, of kind of proving what he says in verse 28, for those who are called, who love God and are called according to his purpose. Well, how would he demonstrate that? Well, he would look at those who've been called in former times. And the word prognosco is used throughout the scriptures. And there's several examples I give in my articles and book um, about where the word prognosco is used to reference those known formally or known in former times. And so, for example, Elijah and Abraham and others that Abraham, I mean, that excuse me, that Paul often references in his writings uh, would be well in view, just like he does in chapter 11 when he references Elijah and the others who refuse to bow a knee to Baal. Who are those people? Those are faithful people, those who are called according to his purpose because they refused to believe in other gods and they stood even in the face of death against the, 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 the prophets of Baal. Um, these are faithful people. And, uh, and these would be God, the people that God knew in advance or knew beforehand. And uh, he predestined them to become like Christ, the one who would become the firstborn among many brethren. And uh, so if you notice in verse 29, everything shifts to the past tense, um, aorist. And so if you understand that the past tense typically indicates you're talking about those in the past. Now, there's a rare usage in uh, Greek of using the past tense as if it's already been set because it's been, uh, you know, it, it's in the mind of God and therefore it is just absolutely certainly going to happen. But that's a very rare usage. And I think the simplest interpretation is often the easiest and the best. And that is simply to say that for new references to those who've known in former times and that therefore he's just simply giving us an explanation of how God brought about his purposes through uh, the those who love God through the past, who've been called according to his purpose to bring about his plan of redemption by, by ultimately um, bringing Christ through that seed so that the, he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. Um, that would be true of Elijah, of Abraham, of Moses. He called them. He justifies them. Um, excuse me, I'm pulling up this other screen here. Um, he calls them, he justifies them, uh, and he glorifies them. Um, and, and therefore, that, that would be just an easier uh, basic level interpretation of prognosco in, in that passage. Um, again, it's really hard to go through just in a short amount of time, but I really highly encourage you to go to Sociology 101 and read the article. If you just type it in the search box, Romans 8, it'll come up and just read through that with the citations of other scholars who hold to this position. And, and again, be, be willing to be good Bereans and look at both, both views side by side. And I think you'll see that it's really a lot easier interpretation than the concept or idea that God uh, somehow just predestined certain individuals for reasons unknown to become believers and therefore um, you know, condemns everybody else as reprobates who, who don't have any choice in the matter. I, I just don't think that's a pill that's worth swallowing because I don't believe it's something that the scriptures teach. Mm. Yeah. Uh, can you hear me all right? I can. All right, good. Hopefully the internet uh, sticks through here for these last few minutes. Um, so obviously 
Romans 9 is where a lot of your work is. Uh, you debated Romans 9. Um, do you want to address that just for a, a, a little bit? Obviously, you know, there's books that can be written about Romans 9 and predestination and all that stuff. But would you like to just kind of touch on it a little bit about how it can be used for predestination, kind of how you look at Romans 9? Yeah, it's really hard to summarize that because it is a difficult passage to understand if you're just looking at it briefly. But um, in short, basically what Paul is getting at is that that God's plan and purposes have not failed because it can seem like that from our vantage point, because it seems like his promise to Israel isn't working out because it looks like Israel's not believing, at least the main uh, people of Israel, the main Israelites, the Pharisees that everybody looked to, None of them are believing that Jesus is their Messiah. And so it looks like his promise to Israel's failed. And, and what Paul is demonstrating is that, that God has always accomplished his purposes through a remnant. A remnant just means a small number and a small number of faithful people, those who refuse to bow and need to bail. And God is able to accomplish his purpose through Israel. And he's not just accomplishing his purpose through the faithful Israelites. He's also accomplishing his purposes through the unfaithful Israelites. And this is really what it gets into in Romans chapter three that I was talking about earlier with judicial hardening is that God can actually bring about his purpose through the rebellion of the Israelite people, that even their choice to rebel against their Messiah was, was a part of God's plan to bring about redemption because who else would have crucified them if not the, the hardened Jews of the day? And so part of the strategy of God was to keep the identity of the Messiah Secret. This is why you see in, in Mark 9, 9 and, and Matthew uh, 13, I believe it is, and several other passages where he says, don't tell anybody what you've seen here. Don't, don't tell everybody it's not the right time. Um, and this is what some people refer to as a messianic secret or uh, this concept that, that God's not revealing his identity until the right time. Well, in the same way, um, he's hiding these these things from already rebellious people, i.e. judicially hardening or blinding them in their rebellion. And he's accomplishing his purpose through them. And so what Paul is ultimately demonstrating is that God has every right as sovereign to define his covenant people however he wants to. And if he wants to define his covenant people through faith in Christ, that's his prerogative. And instead of by lineage and, and by works of the law, um, God can establish his covenant with whoever he wants to. And so if he wants to establish his covenant with a, a half-breed Samaritan uh, prostitute female, which would have been unheard of in that day, it, Paul's saying he has every right to establish his covenant relationship with her through faith. And even though you're born of Abraham, on Abraham's seed, and you're striving after the law, you're not attaining this righteousness but the Gentiles, they're attaining it. Why? Because they're pursuing it through faith, which is exactly the summary that Paul gives at the end of Romans chapter 9. So when it says, for example, I can have mercy on whom I want to have mercy, and I, want, I can harden whom I want to harden, the Calvinist kind of plucks that out of its context and says, look, that means God can reprobate who he wants to reprobate, harden them, or he can show mercy whom he wants to show mercy, i.e. he can effectually save people through irresistible grace if he wants to effectually save them. But that's not the context that Paul's addressing. Paul's talking about the fact that he can show mercy to Israel when it serves his purpose to show them mercy. Like, for example, the verse he's quoting from is out of uh, uh, Exodus 32 uh, and 33, when the Israelites had just built the golden calf 
and they're about to be destroyed. And Moses steps in as the intercessor and says, if you're going to destroy them, block me out of your book instead. In other words, he's like the Messiah figure. He's acting like Paul here at the beginning of verse nine, uh, verse one of chapter nine, where he says, I wish myself accursed for their sake. Um, that sounds like Jesus to me, somebody who's willing to die for his own enemies. Um, and that's exactly what we see from Moses in Exodus 32 and 33 is the Messiah-like figure stepping up and saying, I'm willing to take the wrath. I'm willing to take their place. And so when he says, I will have mercy on them, he's not talking about effectually saving some of them and not others. He's talking about refraining from punishing them, even though they deserve to be punished. That's what mercy means. Mercy doesn't mean uh, the same as grace does. Mercy doesn't mean to effectually save somebody. Mercy means to refrain from punishing somebody who deserves to be punished. And so when he says, I'll have mercy on whom I want to have, I want to have mercy, he's simply saying, if it serves my purpose to show Israel mercy, then that's my prerogative as king, as sovereign. And if it serves my purpose to harden Israel, then that's my prerogative as king. I can harden them when it serves my purpose. And that's exactly what he's doing during the New Testament times. He's hardening them in their rebellion so as to accomplish the crucifixion, as they are the ones who cry out, crucify him. And that's why he references Pharaoh, too, as the foreshadowing of that. Just like I had mercy uh, through um, uh, through the plagues of um, Pharaoh, I hardened his heart to show and demonstrate my power through him. So, too, if I want to harden the nation of Israel in order to demonstrate my power, I have every sovereign right to do that. Who are you to question me for doing what I have, have planned to do to bring about redemption for, for the world? And so once you understand the concepts of judicial hardening and what God's accomplishing through the nation of Israel, there's no reason to, to hyper-individualize this text to be about God selecting some individuals to the neglect of all the rest. This is a really key principle, Zach, that I want your audience to get, is that God doesn't select the nation of Israel to the neglect of all the other nations, okay? Because even Calvinists will agree that God did obviously select nationally the nation of Israel. That's undeniable. You can't, you can't get past that in scripture. He doesn't select the nation of Israel because it's a great nation or because it's worthy. He just, for reasons unknown to us, he just, he chooses a small insignificant nation through which the Messiah would come. But here's the key. He doesn't select the nation of Israel to the neglect of all the other nations. He ch chooses the nation of Israel for the blessing of all the other nations. So let me give you an example of this. I have four children. All of them are boys except one, my daughter. What if I chose my daughter because for, for really no reason, I just choose, choose my daughter and I choose her to bring a gift to all of the rest of my children. Okay. I'm not choosing mm -hmm. her to the neglect of my boys. I'm choosing her to be a blessing to my boys. Make sense? Now, my boys are responsible for what they do with the gift that I send through her, but she, it doesn't mean that I'm choosing her to the neglect of them. I'm choosing her to bring a present to the rest of them, and they're still responsible for what they do with that present. Well, that's the original promise in, in Genesis 12, 3. I, I will bless all the families of the earth through you, through your seed. So he's, his, God's election is not about God choosing people like Paul to the neglect of everybody else. It's about God choosing people like Paul and the other Israelites to the blessing of everyone else. God's election is about expanding of his mercy and his blessings to the world. It's not about a neglect of everyone who's not chosen. And so sometimes what Calvinists will do is they'll take passages out of context about God's choosing of Israel 
to be the blessing of all the families of the earth as somehow teaching that God has chosen some people to the neglect of everyone else. And that's simply not a biblical concept. Um, and, and the analogy I use in, in the Potter's Promise is uh, the analogy of Jonah, because it's really kind of a, a story illustrating God's elective purposes. And you know the story of Jonah. Everybody knows the story of Jonah because it's one of those great stories that we tell to kids as they grow up because it involves a big fish and all the, the things that it, it entails. But um, Jonah is an Israelite. Um, he's one of the people chosen to do what? To be a blessing to the Ninevites, who are Gentile people, non-Jewish people. And so God says, I want you to go and, and share the good news with them. Well, Jonah, in his free will, he doesn't want to go. He wants to run. He doesn't, he doesn't desire for Nineveh to repent. He doesn't want them to be shown mercy because he hates the Ninevites, and he doesn't want God to show them mercy. So he takes off and runs the other direction. Well, so God uses a big storm and a big fish to persuade Jonah to change his mind. Um, and, and therefore, Jonah ends up going to Nineveh and preaching, and, and many of them repent, obviously. Now, here's what I like to point out. Notice, even though Jonah was unfaithful, God accomplished his purpose through him anyway, because God is able to accomplish his purpose even when the vessel he chooses to bless people with is unfaithful. So God will always accomplish purpose even if the vessel he chooses is an unfaithful vessel. Well, Israel is that vessel. Israel is the vessel God has chosen to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. But guess what? That vessel is unfaithful, and God still accomplishes his purpose through that unfaithful vessel. And that's what Paul is ultimately trying to describe through Romans 9 through 11, is that God, even through mercying and hardening the nation of Israel, God is able to show his purposes and his plans despite their unfaithfulness and despite what they do. And what I like to point out is in the story of Jonah, just because God uses external signs and wonders like a, a storm and a big fish to convince the will of his messenger doesn't prove that God uses some internal irresistible means to make certain people believe his message when he gets there. Let that sink in for a second. Just because God chose Jonah individually to be a servant, to be a messenger, and he uses persuasive means like a storm and a big fish to make sure he does what he wants him to do. In other words, you could kind of say that God's imposing his will on the will of Jonah, right? That does not prove that therefore God also picks out certain Ninevites and somehow through some secret irresistible way causes them to believe his message when he arrives. But that's exactly what God, that's exactly what I think that Calvinists are doing throughout the text of scripture is they're pulling verses out of their context to say, look, God chose Israel. Look, God chose Paul. Look, God chose uh, Jonah. Look, God chose that person. And God uses ways to make them do what he wants them to do, a la Calvinism. No, it's not Calvinism. It's just simply God choosing the nation of Israel and unfaithful vessels and using means like signs and wonders to make sure they go where he wants them to go in order to make sure that the message is proclaimed to all the nations of the world because he truly wants to bless all people through even this unfaithful uh, the group of people called the Israelites. God is always faithful to fulfill his promise, even though sometimes the people he has chosen to fulfill that promise through are unfaithful. And that's really what Romans 9 through 11 is all about. Hmm. I think that's a great uh, passage to kind of close things up on. You have a really good 
really good wrap up here on kind of understanding uh, what Calvinism is. I really appreciate your time. Uh, one question for me and then one question from the chat and we'll wrap things up here. My question for you is if Calvinism uh, turns out to be true, would that in any way change your view of who God is? Uh, anything like among those lines? Well, it would, de- I mean, obviously it would definitely, um, it would definitely make me reconsider my interpretive methodology within this text and and understanding who God is because um, so much of what I know about God's character and his love is based upon the understanding of, of, of my relationship with the father, his provision for other people. Um, But if for some reason, like an angel just tore the roof off of my house right now and came in front of me and said, Hey, Layton, by the way, John Piper's right. You know, Calvinism is true. Um, I would have to submit to the truth of who he is. And I, and I would, I, for 10 years, when I thought the Bible taught Calvinism, I submitted to it. Um, I would be willing to submit to what God revealed to me as true. But guess what? If Calvinism is true, that's what it would take. It would take a decree of God because all things, according to Calvinism, are decreed by God. So my rejection of Calvinism is according to God's decree if Calvinism is true. And therefore, the only way that I could really become a Calvinist is if God decreed, i.e. causally determined, for Leighton to drop provisionism and to become a Calvinist. So I feel like I'm in a pretty safe place because if God wants me to be a Calvinist and Calvinism is true, then he'll cause me to be one. And so I'll just wait for him to cause that to happen. (laughs) And I'll continue to teach what I believe is true. (laughs) Yeah, it's a great... uh... Yeah, <laughs> that's funny. Uh, one question here from Wade Harris. Shout out to Wade Harris. Uh, if you don't subscribe to him on YouTube, dude, he's a really good channel. Uh, but he says, uh, this is great stuff. I tend to be more Calvinistic in my theology, but whatever. I have so much respect for my Arminian and provisional brothers and sisters in Christ. And I think this is a really good question to wrap things up on. Obviously, we have uh, this big conversation that we have. But how do we fight for unity in all? Because at the end of the day, um, whether we're Calvinist or a provisionist, a Molinist, an Arminianist, we should hopefully we're all brothers and sisters in Christ. So how do we fight for unity in Christ in your perspective? Yeah. And this is an important topic. Uh, my, my wife happens to be a marriage and family therapist. And so she deals with splits all the time and, and conflict all the time. And one of the things I've learned through her work and just our own, own marriage and our own conversations is that sometimes people mistaken silence for unity um, and, and so sometimes couples, what they'll do is if, if they want to be unified, then they'll just bury their differences and the disagreements. Um, and that is actually a recipe for disaster in marriages um, because eventually uh, the people grow apart and there's an explosion that takes place. A more healthy marriage, uh, and, and also true not only in marriages, but in any relationship, the, the more healthy relationships are the ones that learn to respect somebody who disagrees with them and not to assume a nefarious intention upon the other person. So just because you like something this way or you read something this way, I don't have to assume that it's because you're a bad person or because your character is flawed. Um, I, I can actually see you with the respect of one who loves God, who has good intentions. Um, the way I, I've looked at this before is with my own children if um, if my wife and I go out and um, one of they, they decide to clean up the house for us as a surprise for when we come home and in their haste to clean it up, one of them knocks a lamp over and breaks it. OK, well, that's a bad thing. The lamp broke, um, but their intentions were good. 
They were trying to do the right thing. They just made a mistake. That's the way I, I view many Calvinists. I think they're trying to understand Romans 9 rightly. I think they're trying to interpret God's word correctly, just as I was for 10 years. And so I think they're making a mistake. They're unintentionally misinterpreting something God said. And I get it. I understand. I used to do it myself. Um, but I, I treat that kind of mistake for my children differently than, let's say, I say, okay, son, go to your room. You disobeyed me. And he grabs a lamp and he throws it on the ground intentionally. Now, the punishment for those two things is going to be different. Both of them resulted in the same thing, a broken lamp. But there's a difference between those two things. It's intentionality. The intention of my brothers and sisters in Christ is good. They, they're wanting to do the right thing. John Piper, for example, is a, uh, we've had him at our event before, and, and we've prayed together. He's one of the most gracious and humble, loving men I've ever had the pleasure of working with. I think his intentions are top shelf. He wants to do the right thing. He is passionate about the glory of God. I just think he's misunderstood some passages of Scripture. Um, and I, I would hope that he would feel the same thing about me if if he were to be asked about that. Um, and that's that's what you have to. It's a it's a mark of Christian maturity to be able to entertain the ideas and thoughts of someone else without necessarily holding to the same views that they do. Um, and and that's a that's a mark of maturity in marriage. It's a mark of maturity in any relationship where you can learn to engage with those who disagree with you without being overly disagreeable without having to shout them down, without having to silence them or, or to, to, to make them, uh, you know, what I call shame bashing and pious bashing, where you try to, um, to, to make them feel like a, a lesser of a person because they disagree with you on some subject. Um, that, that's just, it, it, it looks not only, not only is it, is it unproductive, it doesn't work. As Proverbs says, if you want to be persuasive, the sweetness of speech is what works. Um, the way we would put it in our vernacular today, you win more flies with honey than with vinegar. Uh, if, if we want to be persuasive, if we want to, if we actually want to win people over, then we need to, to do so. We need to speak truth in love, uh, not in hatred and vitriol. Um, and so we, we've got to practice that for the church, uh, not only for those inside the church, but for those outside the church who are watching how we treat one another. Um, and so it, it pains me to no end when I see uh, either Calvinist or provisionist or Arminians or whatever group uh, shouting down the other side and embarrassing the church by acting the fool uh, in defense of their particular uh, doctrines. And, um, and, and I think we need to be called to a higher level of integrity with how we treat each other. Yeah, I think that's a great summary of the importance of Christian unity despite our theological differences. Uh, before we wrap things up here, anything you want to say regarding just promoting your work? How, if people want to follow you and they've never heard of Dr. Layton Flowers, how do they follow what you're doing? Uh, Soteriology101.com um, or my name, LaytonFlowers.com. I actually had, had to buy that a couple of years ago because I was afraid uh, it might be taken over by somebody who is not uh, a favor of my views. But um, it's sometimes people don't know how to spell soteriology. So I just uh, got that one as well. So you can find uh, information about me there and uh, learn more information. If you go to texasbaptist.org, you can learn more information about my, my evangelism and apologetics ministry uh, with the state convention and all the work that we do to help pastors around the state of Texas. Um, and uh, I encourage you to go to either one of those websites to learn more about uh, our ministry. Awesome. I appreciate your time. Uh, if you want to follow here in apologetics, what to do, you can subscribe, follow stuff. I appreciate your time. I appreciate you helping me through these internet difficulties. Uh, 
going to figure it all out. I really appreciate it. Not a problem. Glad to be on, Zach. God all bless right. you, my friend. God bless everyone. Have a good day.